tonight, we're going to be discussing a film from the early 70s that involves a little tale of the recording industry and an artist done wrong who has to go into hiding. We're going to have a damsel in distress, some undiscovered talent, and a shadowy figure in the wings. Take your seats. The show is about to begin. Paul, I just love the way you keep your beard. Does it take a lot of work? Well, you know, I, I do spend a, a lot of time at it, but uh, I think it's worth it. Uh, oh. Uh, oh, I just love your accent. It's so dreamy. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. It's so nice having you here at the Marionette Theater, Paul. <laughs> Good oh. to be here. It's great. Uh, great. It looks great. Yeah, you know, I do a lot of the upkeep around here. <laughs> oh, you do a very good job. Now, anytime you want something from the concession stand, just give you your little hand a wave and I'll see you and I'll just bring you whatever you want, okay? Thank you, Gertie. That's that's so kind of you. All right, uh, Gertie, we uh, need to do the opening. Oh, of course. <laughs> All right. Uh, DJ, cue my music, okay, honey? Drinking violet Winslow Leach is driven mad when the heart and soul of his life's passion is stolen by record tycoon Swan. Framed for a crime he didn't commit, he must escape his prison so the public will learn the truth about his the talent behind the opening of the town's hottest new club. Will Winslow's name be cleared? Will the songbird he's meant for fall for the swan's evil advances? Slip on a pair of bob bell bottoms and get your high platform dancing shoes. It's time for Phantom of the Paradise. Hit it, boys. What do you get when you take a dash of the silver screen, a pinch of golden oldies, and a smidgen of screaming? It's time for Matinee Minutia with your host, DJ and Tommy. Well, hey there, folks, and welcome to the beautiful historical marionette theater. Grab yourself a cup of tea because we're going to sit down and have a chat with our friend from across the pond, Mr. Paul Chandler of the Shy Life Podcast. Welcome, Paul. Hi, DJ. It's great to, great to be here. And of course, to my side, we have my co-host, my partner in crime, Mr. Toppy Smelly. Yes, indeed. How do you do, everybody? It's Toppy. Uh, it's going to be St. Patrick's Day shortly here. Actually, it will have already been, and... Um, are you one who enjoys those mint green shakes that they have in the drive throughs <laughs> Well, not exactly. Uh, let's see, what do I like? Um, a, a nice green top hat uh, felt. Um, I don't care if I have a green beer or something like that. Um, green lipstick. Sometimes I'll wear that. Uh, <laughs> Paul is... Uh, is St. Patrick's Day a big deal over there where you are? 
to a certain extent, although I think it's quite easy to avoid as well. If you want to go to the pubs, there's always something going on. But uh, I, I, I don't think I've ever had a green beer. It's intriguing. Yeah. You know, DJ, as far as uh, our selection uh, tonight, uh, the color scheme of Phantom of the Paradise isn't exactly green. It's kind of red, isn't it? It is, and it takes place in the 70s, so of course there's plenty of denim, there's gold, and rose-colored glasses. Mm-hmm. And, well, uh, why don't you uh, set the scene for us? Uh, Phantom of the Paradise came out in 1974. Why actually, let's play that uh, trailer. Okay. Yeah. Phantom. 20th Century Fox presents Phantom of the Paradise, a gothic horror story. What was that? A beautiful love story. A cinematic odyssey through the rock universe. From Greece to glitter. And beyond. The story of a sound. The man who created it. The girl who sang it. The monster who stole it. And the phantom who haunts the paradise. The ultimate rock palace. Phantom of the Paradise. My music is for Phoenix. Only she can sing it. Anyone else that tries, dies. Phoenix. Phoenix. Well, you told me one time that you'd be somebody, that you were a and just to survive. B. Just no! Man, you better get yourself a castrato for this. Paul Williams as Swan. And the angels that defeated them. I want you to stop terrorizing the paradise and rewrite your cantata. And the phantom. Of the paradise. Phantom. Ooh. DJ 1974. Set the stage for us. What was going on in this crazy world? Okay. In 1974, daylight savings time began four months early in response to the energy crisis, which was also the oil embargo in the Middle East. And U.S. District Court Judge George Bolt ruled that the Native American tribes in Washington states are entitled to half of the legal salmon based on treaties signed by the tribes and the U.S. government. Also in 74, Stephen King's first novel, Carrie, is published. And uh, the Universal Product Code, otherwise known as UPC, the barcode, it's scanned for the first time in stores. Oh, God, I never would have known it was that early. (laughs) And we certainly didn't get it out in the haystack until later than that. Yeah. Uh, 
You know, I remember up until the 90s, we still had the uh, the little uh, sticker stamps. And, well, I remember my brother swapping things out when we went grocery shopping. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but uh, it was to sell a package of Wrigley's chewing gum at the Marsh supermarket in Troy, Ohio. Oh, you mean that's the product they first scanned? It is it <laughs> out in the, the heartland there and uh, winding things out in 74, the year of this film, Richard Nixon boo, he becomes the first president of the United States to resign from office. Yes, well, indeed. hoping he's not the last, but okay. Well, yeah. Uh, Paul, uh, that was an incredibly uh, American, U.S. of A-centric uh, windup of what was going on in 74. Is there anything that you recall um, in the U.K. that was uh, happening in 1974? Well, 1974 was the year that ABBA won the Eurovision Song Contest and with with their song Waterloo. Oh, that, that was the that was the start of them being sort of really big. So that's that's wow. the thing that I think of. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, in '74 we had some celebrity births and deaths. We'll start with Seth Green. He's an actor and voice actor, known for Family Guy. And uh, we've got Jerry O'Connell, known as Quinn on Fox's Sliders. He's also the voice of Clark Kent and uh, Superman on Justice League. How about Grace Park, born that year? She's Boomer on Sci-Fi Channel's Battlestar Galactica. Allison Hannigan, and she was in My Stepmother is an Alien and How I Met Your Mother. And, of course, Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, well, I suppose most well-known for Titanic. And um, and he was Oscar-nominated for The Wolf of Wall Street in 2013. And um, DJ, in the theaters in 1974, what else was competing with our beloved Phantom of the Paradise? Okay, so the other films that were out in 74 competing for your attention. Number one was a comedy film. It was a Western of sorts. It was Blazing Saddles with Cleavon Little and Gene Wilder, and that brought in $119 million that year. Wow. Yeah. Oh, this is next one is a good one because it's our old pal Irwin Allen. Yeah, I think this might be a favorite of yours. Uh, mm -hmm film with number two and it starred steve mcqueen and paul newman and in this brought 116 million in talking about towering inferno hey you guys towering inferno was the first non-disney movie i was ever allowed to go see <laughs> and let me tell you when that lady fell out of the elevator to her death i was not prepared for that <laughs> that did not happen in Disney movies. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, rounding it out, and uh, it should be so, of course, no surprise that we support the underdog here at Matinee Minutia. Well, Phantom of the Paradise, it wasn't even in the top five. It wasn't even the top three. Top three, number three, was a little film with a bit of martial arts and a little bit of the West it was The Trial of Billy Jack, and it starred Tom Laughlin, 
And then later wife, Dolores Taylor, that brought in 89 million. And uh, it was part of what was later, what, a trilogy or a quadrilogy, Toppy? Uh, more than three. I was uh, very shocked to find out. More than three. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, the last movie in the series was made in 1977, which really shocked me. Mm, so, uh, Fam of the Paradise, it didn't place in the top, but that's okay. It has a cult following, and we're, we're here to talk about that today. Runner-up to Phantom was a film called The Conversation, and this is a film that has Gene Hackman and John Cazal, and it brought in $4.4 million in yeah. 1974. Uh, the Conversation, a well-respected movie today, even though it you know, didn't light the box office on fire. Today it's known as, well, it's a good, good movie. Uh, oh, my goodness. You know, DJ, what, is it just us or what happens? Why do we always get the underdog? We always choose the underdog. Why is that? You know, I think that the films that score big at the Baco's office, they get too much attention. And I don't know about you, Toppy, but when I was growing up, I kind of considered myself the class clown because, you know, maybe I needed a little bit more attention. So that's why I've got a sweet spot in my heart for films like this. Yeah. Well, you know what? If we wanted to, DJ, we could uh, we could be off the hook because uh, it really wasn't us that chose this as a topic. <laughs> and Paul, uh, Paul Chandler of the Shy Life podcast. Why? Hello. Why Hi. did you choose <laughs> of all the movies you could have chosen? You chose Phantom of the Paradise. Why? Well, it's it's partly as you said. It, it was it's a bit, it, bit of an obscure choice. Um, I think it's just stuck in my head. A friend of mine, uh, fellow podcaster Nick Goodman, um, he uh, he he was the one who showed it to me. Um, cause he, he's a sort of big fan of, of seventies films. And I think he probably showed it me at least 20 years ago. So, uh, I think it was probably even less talked about then that it is sort of now, um, a, a bit like, you know, films like the Wicker Man, which have, have had a growing sort of, um, sort of cult following over the last 20, 25 years. Um, Phantom of the Paradise is, 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 is similar. Um, it, it's certainly uh, well into what we call a cult film today. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah, you can get in like nice Blu-ray versions, and 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 yeah, it's and, sort of. And so, what what year would you say you saw it first? I would I would say twenty twenty five years ago, possibly. Um, and it's probably one yeah. of the first Brian De Palma films I saw. Yeah, in a theater. <clears throat> no, no, it would have been. I don't know. It was, it was VH, definitely VHS, whether it was recorded off the television or whether it was okay. uh, uh, he bought it. I'm not sure. All right. Yeah. My history with this movie is uh, a, a number of my pals and I, back in 1974, we were just kids. And we loved horror movies. And a friend of mine must have seen Phantom of the Paradise because he talked about it a lot. Mm. I had no idea, you know, what what it was. My parents had only just let me go see the Towering Inferno. They certainly weren't going to let me go see Phantom of the Paradise. And so for years, I mean, right up to today, 
all I'd done was heard and known about the movie. I and and I knew practically nothing about it. And frankly, I don't think in all my life I ever saw somebody play a clip from it. I didn't know what it looked like. I I knew it was like Phantom of the Opera, but that's about it. And I knew that it was, I guess, I think I knew that it was kind of a horror comedy. I think I knew that. But sat down and watched it just the other day. And <laughs> there's a lot to unpack here. DJ, What's uh, when did you run across this movie, if ever? Well, funny you should ask that. Um, <laughs> of course, I am the junior of all three here, and uh, you'll have to pardon the all the "Are you being served?" reference, my my dear friend there. But um, you know, I I was introduced uh, on behalf of Paul here, so thank you. And um, I I want to assume that because Paul still associates with his friend Nick that introduced him to this. We're still on good terms, and um, well, we'll, we'll see if Toppy forgives me for some of the films that I've introduced him to. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I have enjoyed this, and I, I of course I wasn't aware of this when it came out. Um, you know, I wasn't quite a twinkle in anyone's eye, but um, <laughs> I, I am fascinated to learn some of the things that I have about this, which we'll get into shortly. But what some may not realize was that this was in the works already before Rocky Horror made it to the screen. And it was even released before Rocky Horror, right? Yeah. A year before. About a year, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so much to unpack here. And Paul, uh, you are very knowledgeable about the music scene. You, you, you've spent time, uh, you know, reviewing music past and present and i i'm hoping you can fill us in um uh, when i think of what i just saw on phantom of the paradise and then a year later in rocky horror picture show there's two things uh, that i immediately become aware of each movie um had a version of some sort of creature being made and a Frankenstein monster being unveiled and kind of a rock opera kind of way. And all I'm thinking, all I, I want to know what was going on in perhaps New York city or London or Chicago, where this was a gestalt of this kind of rock opera. And I don't know. It, it can't be just a coincidence that these two movies had this Frankenstein motif, I, but 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 sort of a, a stage spectacle, um, you know, where people are half naked and it's just uh, a little psychedelic. Was there something going on? Well, um, by seventy four, the sort of the glam era in the UK, which is uh, people like. Um, David Bowie and T-Rex um, sort of uh, uh, became famous, but but um, I don't think a lot of the glam side was happening. But but David by seventy four, David Bowie probably would have been known, I think, all over the world. But um, so so there was sort of that going, and I think also by seventy four, Kiss were 
start had started or, or were beginning to become famous. So, and, and Kiss are sort of inspired a bit by the UK glam scene uh, with all the sort of glitter and face paint. And um, so, so there's that. In fact, um, they they did mention. I think there's a song in the film where there there's a a band who keep recurring in trying different music and there is one song where where they're all dressed in sort of face paint and the the, the one of the documentaries I, I heard they didn't sort of mention um you know did did they influence kiss or did kiss influence them they nobody was prepared to say so um can i just say that <clears throat> the 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 feeling i have behind it all is avant-garde underground mm-hmm stuff that was not mainstream at all um wherever wherever this originated this was stuff that i think you know we can call underground uh not um just nothing it was subversive it was go ahead i I suppose in the early 70s also sort of leading up to this you'd had a lot of those big sort of pop musicals like Hair and Jesus Christ Superstar and, and and although you know not not horror they they were very you know that sort of take, taking pop and and uh, um, you know you see that could be an extent of Phantom and, and Rocky Horror could be an extension of those sorts of things. Was Tommy the Rock Opera after yes. this or before um, or contemporaneous? I think, I think around the same sort of time. Um, it may be slightly earlier. I'd have to check. Yeah, there's a lot of that sort of thing going on. My feelings about this era in music are that, you know, here in the States, we we have what we call the British invasion, of course. So this is in the decade that followed that. And I just feel as though maybe the children of the Beatles had raided their mother's wardrobe, got into her makeup, and we just decided to invent glam rock. (laughs) Yeah, oh, I, I I can confirm. Um, Tommy came out in '75, the the musical, the the film musical. Um, so yeah, this was this was um, yeah that uh, Tommy was more con- sort of around the same time as Rocky Horror. Um, so Phantom was slightly ahead. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I I would love to have been in New York City to see what was going on that was bubbling beneath the surface that maybe inspired someone like Brian De Palma, who directed this movie, uh, to envision something like this. And also a whole different crowd, almost simultaneously developing some sort of vision for Rocky Horror. They're, They're just, God only knows what it was like. It must have been fascinating. It makes makes you wonder if Brian De Palma hung out at Studio 54. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I uh, Looking at his uh, sort of filmography, there was a, a, slot, a bit of a gap between his previous film Sisters in 1972, which I, I've also seen. Uh, which I've also seen that's, um, that's quite a weird film. Again, completely different from, from Phantom. Um, that's got Margot Kidder in it. Um, but that, that, and again, that is a sort of slasher, an early sort of form of slasher film. Um, yeah. It's quite a complicated story. Um, so very, very different. You know, the two films. Uh, he's obviously trying to do something completely different this time. Now, the story of Phantom of the Paradise is a mashup, sort of, 
of three or four different stories. And, you know, most certainly Phantom of the Opera is in this. And, you know, we, we've got the, um, the composer, Winslow Leach, who has uh, done his life's work and he's put it down on paper. And in the beginning of the film, he's discovered, you know, we have a moment where after this uh, performance is done in the studio, he comes in and he gets down on the piano and then, um, you know, the big wig, Mr. Swan's uh, henchman there, Philbin, hears him and then, of course, goes to talk to him in the dressing room. But that's his life's work. And it's something called a cantata. Now, Toppy, for our listeners' benefit, uh, could you tell us what the definition of a cantata is? Yeah, and trust me, I didn't know this. I had to look it up. <laughs> uh, but a cantata is a medium-length narrative piece of music um, for voices plus instrumental ex uh, accompaniment. Um, uh, there's solos. Uh, there's usually a chorus. Uh, yeah, there's usually a full orchestra. We're talking, um, a, you know, we could use the word epic. This sounds like it's some, some kind of narrative that is epic. Yeah, because uh, the way Winslow was attached to his music in the beginning there, he's holding on to it like it's his child, and it's all bound with, I think, rubber bands to hold it together. Now, certainly he's using that term cantata affectionately, but I, I think he said that it was over 200 pages, so mm -hmm. he he's using sort of artistic license to call that a cantata, something that big. All right. <laughs> And this guy's portrayed by, uh, this is Finley, right? William Finley? Yeah, and William Finley uh, has done a bunch of work, including Phantom of the Paradise. Now, uh, a lot of his roles were sort of character parts, and uh, Mr. Finley's no longer with us. He passed away, I do believe, oh, in the uh, in the, the teens, as we say now that we're in the 2020s. He last credited role was in 2006, The Black Dahlia. Now, ironically, I had, did see that in the theaters, and it was a kind of a dark and uh, creepy movie, but it, there was a murder involved. It had Josh Hartnett and Scarlett Johansson, and William Finley played the creepy boyfriend of the murderer in that film. Mm -hmm. I do know that the main reason William Finley wound up is in, in this role is he, he was buddies with De Palma. They were college mm. buddies. Yeah, and the Black Day and the Black Dahlia, that's also a point De Palma film. So he's still um, got that connection 20 so plus years later as well. Right. Um, um, let's get to the score, to the music. And we're, we're talking um, that was primarily responsible for Paul Williams. And I can kind of see why De Palma arrived at Paul Williams because the year before he had been, Paul Williams yeah. was nominated for an Oscar for something that he had done. It was called um, Nice to Be Around. That was the name of the piece of music. And it was co-written with none other than John Williams. And it was from a movie in 1973 called Cinderella Liberty. So Paul Williams was already getting a reputation around town as a, a, a movie guy, a soundtrack guy. And um, 
And I can see why De Palma might have thought of him. And also, don't you guys think that, you know, another reason De Palma might have thought of him is he was known for appearing in movies, but he he looked weird. There was Paul Williams is a bit of a strange looking man, and it fit perfectly with this character called uh, the Swan. Yeah, I did wonder. I've already seen pictures of him around this time, and I presume they're for this film, but I don't know how much that was his... I have a feeling that's probably kind of what he used to, you know, what he dressed like anyway, so he didn't sort of change his appearance that much for the film. I might be wrong, but... Yeah, I don't know either. Um, but but he was kind of short. He had long hair. Um, an unusual face. Um it it was fun to see how they incorporated his stature into the uh, the persona of Mr. Swan in that he was, you know, a corporate type. He was the megalomaniac who was in charge. And all of the doorways in the important places were lowered to remind you that this is his venue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's just um, stretch out Paul's, you know, rather extensive career but he went on to do work with barbara streisand as the music supervisor for stars born 76 uh the muppet movie in 79 famous certainly uh for uh the rainbow connection um in the muppet movie which won two uh that soundtrack won two grammy awards um and uh he went on to do lots of things, Bugsy Malone, um, Ishtar, uh, the sum of all fears. Um, uh, <laughs> and as an actor, perhaps most strangely, he was in one of the planet of the apes movies mm-hmm. behind the costume. Uh, he was, um, uh, the orangutan Virgil, who I believe was the keeper of the weapons. And uh, that was a battle for the planet of the apes in 1973. So what there, there a weird was, career. There was a bit, there was a, an anecdote he said on something I, I, I listened to where there's a, a scene at the end of the film where he's kind of wearing a, a mask, a sort of silvery mask. And apparently that was made from the mold that they used to make his uh, mask for Planet of the Apes. But apparently he he said that um, he'd actually lost quite a lot of weight, so um, he was quite pleased he'd lost a lot of weight. And then, then of course, he had to wear the mask where he was made him look, look bigger again. Um, oh. Uh, so, yeah. Oh. <laughs> what an awesome piece of trivia uh, that is. Um, I did not know that. That's yeah. pretty. That's, that's a nice little nugget right there. <laughs> so uh, Mr. Paul Williams is just one of a, a handful of the main stars in this cast and uh, another of course is the songbird who's discovered during this ordeal you know the the composer Mr. Um, Mr. I'm forgetting his name now uh, William Leach uh, he is uh, of course disfigured through an accident after He's framed for a crime, 
and uh, he he falls for one of the singers who's trying out for the part of singing his his cantata at the opening of the club. Now, that's played by Jessica Harper, and her character is Phoenix. Now, um, Phantom was Phantom of the Paradise was her first film debut and uh in the following year in 75 she'd star with richard dreyfus and bob hoskins in an odd film called inserts where uh it involved some adult film silent era (laughs) but um interestingly enough jessica harper also starred a handful of years later in the film that followed uh phantom of the paradise rocky horror picture shows low budget some might say sequel and it was called um shock treatment and so she actually replaced susan sarandon in the low budget sequel to rocky horror picture ironically ah interesting she's she's in um uh two of my my favorite films other than this one Oh, well. name them. She's in Suspiria, which is a Dario Argento film from '77, and um, and she actually appeared in the remake from 2018 as a different character. But she's also in Stardust Memories from 1980. That's uh, one of my favourite Woody Allen's. She's also in Love and Death, another Woody Allen. But but um, um, Stardust Memories, she has a bigger part, I think. Yeah, and so, so, yeah. huh? Interesting. Um, Let's move on to uh, the actor who portrays portrays Beef, which we'll be talking about more. Uh, that's Garrett Graham. He's another buddy, really, of De Palma from college days. That's pretty much why he wound up in Phantom of the Paradise. But he went on to have fairly extensive career as an actor. A lot of TV stuff, Beretta, Starsky and Hutch, Laverne and Shirley, the A-Team fame, it goes on and on. Oh, all the way up to Star Trek Voyager. (laughs) Um, And uh, the 1980s Twilight Zone. He was uh, a voice in Disney's The Little Mermaid. Um, And he, oddly enough, co-wrote the screenplay for a cartoon short called The Prince and the Pauper in 1990. So he's been around and uh, done quite a lot. Um, actually, says here, uh, he was also a writer involved in The Little Mermaid. So there you go. Hmm. Uh, but also... Uh, he was in Chud too, so you know, quite a, quite a career. I think Beef is one of my favourite characters, particularly that scene in the when he's having a shower and uh, and, and the, the Phantom approaches him <laughs> and sticks the uh, the plunger. And it's just his exp- his expression when, it, when he gets the plunger stuck over his face. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I'm I wasn't as familiar with Mr. Graham's work. But, um, you know, someone from my generation would recognize him more from what Toppy was saying. One of his later roles was in Star Trek Voyager. It was a guest role. But uh, for the uh, the everyday sci-fi nerd, he'll go down in history as the only member of the Q continuum, continuum those omnipotent beings who, who wanted to end his life. Uh, oh, that was the Voyager episode. 
Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, his role as Beef. Um, uh, somebody described this. What, who is Beef in Phantom of the Paradise? Somebody, somebody unpack this. <laughs> well, he's, you know, he's that uh, pinnacle figure of the glam rock era. And in the unveiling of him at the concert at the Paradise, that's the premiere night, he is somewhat of a, a, a construct. He's assembled, a.k.a. like Frankenstein, from members of the audience that were basically planted there because they they have, you know, dismembered parts that are severed by the, the uh, I forget what it's called, the long part of the guitars. They're made to look like they have uh, a sort of a, a knife type of weapon on yeah, them or a blade of some sort yeah yeah and so the uh the the band is performing and they're selecting you know victims from the audience and then they're gathering the parts and then they create this monster that uh, comes down from the ceiling just like frankenstein and it is beef in all of his glory and uh you know again it's it's this film is released before rocky horror but it's that same splendor that Tim Curry would later follow in the shadow of. Right. And uh, beef comes out and um, he's kind of hot. He has a very gay sensibility. In fact, they, they pretty much do everything they can to insinuate that uh, beef in real life is a gay man. Um, I'm trying to thank you guys. Did Brian De Palma really dislike gay people, or what do you think? Because, or was it just the time, you know? And they just did the most obvious things to say that this guy's gay. What What do you guys take? What's your guys take? Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm not. I'm not sure. I wasn't because because they say the f word as well. The 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 oh not, yeah. Yeah, um, he, not a cigarette, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Paul uh, Williams says, uh, "Get this f ag." Yeah, but I. then that, but then that, that's the the character. That's typical of that character. You can't imagine that character being that enlightened. So I, I don't know how much it is the characters rather than the, or, or whether it is anything from the from behind the scenes, just the way things were. Mm -hmm. but I, I was wondering myself, and um, they don't really. Um, yeah, because it's, yeah. it, it's hard to tell. It really is. Yeah. Um, it, there's it is nothing. Not, yeah, it, sorry, it's not clear whether that that was intended as to be, you know, uh, prejudice against that type of person. But um, in a cast reunion that I got to watch, Derek Graham was asked about the direction that he received playing the character. And he said that he was basically told to be flamboyant. Okay. So I think maybe the stereotypes that we saw portrayed is just a, an indication of, of the year that this was made. And uh, perhaps we shouldn't read into it that Brian De Palma had some kind of weird thing against gay people. He may have loved gay people. I don't know. Well, it was interesting, though, too, because uh, Garrett Graham certainly played that character 
and uh, you know gave you some surprises on screen his character was strong for being you know possibly flamboyant or effeminate and when his character was practicing for the the premiere that night he was told by swan that only he could perform that song that he could you know outdo basically any woman it's intermission time folks We've reached that point in the program where we're about halfway through. So this is your chance to get up, stretch your legs, refill your beverage, and maybe visit the little half-moon house. And we'll be back in about three minutes. In the meantime, stay tuned for a guest appearance made by Mr. Paul Williams on the 76th Brady Bunch Variety Hour. Ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to introduce a man who is so short, he needs a ladder to get into a good mood. <laughs> so, hey, Paul. Peter, Greg. How you doing, Paul? Doing short jokes yeah. today, are we? I like those, huh? I am a connoisseur myself of short jokes. Do you know the one? Paul, I've been looking low and low for you. Oh. you know? <laughs> I, this guy, he rode into town on a Shetland pony. He couldn't have been the sheriff. <laughs> you think that's funny? That's funny. <laughs> it's a blue Rolls Royce. That's great. Hey, look, should I continue with the introduction now? Don't ever touch my body. Yes! <laughs> oh, I love you. Ladies and gentlemen, the multi-talented, big Paul Williams. Mom! Shine on lightning The days are long and the nights are frightening Nothing matters anyway That's the hell of it Winter comes and the winds blow colder Well, some go wiser You just grew older You never listened anyway That's the hell of it And uh, Swan was playing into the stereotype that, you know, uh, possibly a gay man wouldn't want to be outdone by a woman. Right. And I have to say that the actor, um, Garrett Graham, was fearless in his portrayal. Wouldn't you guys agree? I mean, he, he I mean, that is an awesome performance. And he really gets up there. And it's interesting because the, the, uh, we're, we're watching on film a stage musical. And it's kind of filmed in real time so that you really get a feel like uh, it's a stage musical. Uh, for example, when they go after to get these victims out of the audience, they don't explain anything. Uh, but but it's as you watch it, you realize, oh, you know, these are just stage dummies that they're cutting up. Um, and it's very much like you are sitting in the audience watching this and they're at, it, it, it's, it's staged like, like it really is a musical and De Palma just happens to be there filming it. I found that all very interesting. What did, what did you guys think? Yeah, that, that was really cool. I, I also kind of, um, think, find, I, I kind of wonder, cause I find that beef's like a, it's like a parody of. I don't know of, of somebody like, like like maybe from like Zed Led Zeppelin. He's really over the really over the top, um, and, and and almost to the point of uh, 
I, I'm trying to work out whether they they think he's good or whether they think he's mm. he's bad or they don't care or it's part of the plot or because he's so over the top and he falls over and he makes he he's he's not not um you know he he's not great um but they they keep on and they let him play the role um and, and I'm not I yeah I'm sort of tying myself in knots thinking you know what, what what was Swan thinking when they when they they gave him that role um there is something in the plot uh, can we think of it why did he he uh, okay, so we'll make it clear that the, the Phantom of the Paradise wanted uh, his his woman, Jessica Harper. Uh, anybody remember the name of her character? Phoenix. Um, Phoenix. Phoenix. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, do you think there's any reason why her name was symbolically called Phoenix? Can we think of anything? Why? It can't be. A, like, we know what a Phoenix is. Yeah, yeah. Any, I, I- I think maybe it's to suggest that she's reinventing herself and it's, you know, certainly it's not her real name, but as mm. you follow her character through this film, she's showing up to all of these tryouts and they keep telling her, we want you to do this. And she says, I'm not a screamer. I'm a singer. And mm. she keeps getting turned away for having talent. Cause all they want is a pretty face. Yeah. I think I think you I think you got it there, DJ. Yeah, Phoenix. Um, uh, Phantom of the Paradise wants Jessica Harper. I mean, <laughs> Phoenix to be doing this bit on stage that Beef is doing, mm-hmm. and by this time, uh, Phantom of the Paradise is so unhinged that uh, he murders Beef right on stage, mm-hmm. and. Um, and and then, as the story progresses, we're we're almost near the the climax. Uh, um, Phoenix is chosen to be in the Swan's next big huge th- deal, and by then, Swan has realized that the the murder on stage of beef was such a hit i mean the fans you know that he he decides the next thing i do i, I i'm going to get rid of phoenix on stage and that'll even be a bigger hit and that's how um, it leads up to the climax because phantom of the paradise who's really an anti-hero uh, you know, he's a, a murderer, uh, he's, yeah, but uh, at the end, he is rushing to save Phoenix from uh, being killed on stage. And that's uh, that's where all the, the climax comes from at the end. Did anyone else feel, though, watching this, that that title, Phantom of the Paradise, leads you to wonder if automatically the phantom is actually the composer now that he's disfigured or is it more in the sense that it's a phantom that it's a shadow of someone in which case mr swan would fit that bill because spoiler um you know paul could you fill the listeners in a little bit about mr swan what's his dark secret well he um this is where the story the faust story or the sort of selling yourself to the, the devil uh thing comes in because uh, he, he, as much as, um, much as the, the, the Phantom sells his soul to Swan, Swan has also, um, sold his soul already. He's, he's under contract too, as he says at one point. 
yeah, it's it's a little bit like uh, you'll have to forgive me because I'm not as involved with the uh, the lore of horror films. But is it is it vampires that you have to kill the one who bit you for you to kill the vampire? I think I think what what you mean is um, if someone's bitten by a vampire, if you kill that vampire that did the biting, the person that was turned into a vampire in the movies most times is like miraculously cured right so in the same way that paul has explained to the listeners that mr swan 2 is under contract you know um the composer phoenix or um the phantom there he's he's not going to be rid of him because somebody else is pulling the strings <laughs> right that's kind of a big reveal isn't it uh um, yeah. paul williams you know basically also signed you know signed his soul over in fact there's a big battle sequence between uh the phantom and and uh, the swan and uh, it turns out both of them are are immortal pretty much mm-hmm. and they're both stabbing each other and like uh not killing each other weird yeah so you know after watching this i i have to wonder paul you know you've told us uh, how you you came to learn of this film and how you know you you uh, come to know of it as one of your favorites, but uh, since the seventies when this was uh, released, there, how do you think that the recording industry has changed? Because certainly in the generations that follow, we had the likes of you know like Prince and George Michael, who mm. felt like they were indebted to their contracts that they had no way out. So they, they basically had to reinvent themselves. Yeah. And, and, and it's not like they were just starting off because they, they were at the top of their game and they were still being manipulated by their management. You'd think that by the time they got that far that they'd, all, you know, they'd get to sit, to be the directors of, of their, of their career, but that's not always the case. So actually I, I mean, I'm not sure much has changed at all. I mean, the things that have changed, obviously the way that music's distributed and, and that, you know, often the new album by a, a band is not as important as um, the tour, or the live uh, um, the live event. But behind the scenes, I really wouldn't be surprised if there's very little um, difference. I don't think artists get much control. A lot, of, a lot of bands, particularly if they're boy bands or girl bands, you know, it's the people who write their songs who are directing them. Um, yeah, because yeah, I, I, I've heard that due to the streaming element, you know, artists aren't selling entire albums anymore. So it depends mm-hmm. how many times a song is listened to. And for goodness sakes, now we've got soundtracks to movies. And so some songs that have been out for a long time now are getting rediscovered by new generations because, like Phantom of the Paradise, it's become a cult classic. Yeah, I, I really don't think that... Uh... It probably is is that much different. I, I, I hope nobody's selling their soul, but uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we've got people who will put wigs on backwards and uh, don't show their faces, and that's certainly understandable. I mean, Swan himself didn't want his picture taken, and of course, once you get more than halfway through the movie, you understand why. Again, <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah you, yeah, I think um, I think Lady Gaga would have fitted in very well if she'd have been around. She she could have been the phoenix of uh, um, of, of the movie if she'd have been if been there in, the, in that time. Mm-hmm. We really need to address Brian De Palma. Um, he directed this and he also wrote it. This is a De Palma movie, and 
the most obvious question I have is what was his deal? <laughs> what I mean is, this is a cynical movie. It's very cynical. Mm -hmm. Now, my guess is, since he really wasn't in the music biz, he was in the film biz, that we can take from it, I guess, maybe the cynicism that's the commentary of this movie about the music industry I, I I think maybe he's his experience was he has cynicism for the movie industry. Um, that's that's my first observation. Um, do we? Does anybody have anything about that? I I mean, it 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 don't, it don't present the music industry in a very flattering light. No, I mean, I mean, my my thoughts on Van der Palmer. Uh, I I don't know. Because his career is kind of, it's almost like looking at looking at it in front of me now. It's almost like two sort of separate halves. Because I'm I'm much more familiar with his seventies and early eighties stuff because it falls into that horror genre. More, more not every film, but but you do have you've got Carrie, you've got the Fury, you've got Dress to Kill, and then you've got the like thriller like Blowout or Body Double. Uh, but the one the sort of things like Scarface and Untouchables and a lot of those ones I've never really watched because they go into the genre I'm not quite so interested in. Uh, and I don't know whether that means that he was making the films, that he, he got to the stage where he could make the films he really wanted to make, or whether, you know, maybe maybe his interest changed. Maybe he always made the films he really wanted to make. Uh, I wish I knew. I, I, I really wish I knew what was going on in his head that he wrote this movie and... Uh, it's dark. Yeah. It's dark. Because it would have been a bit different, the American, an American director compared to, I know quite a bit about Italian directors, and they were very much, oh, okay, so um, no, somebody does The Exorcist, right, we're going to do Italian imitations of, mm -hmm. oh, oh, right, we're going to do this, we're going to do this type of horror film, because that's the thing that's... Um, <laughs> but that's not the case with American directors. They were the ones bleeding the way um, and the, uh, the other people were copying. So Yeah. One thing we know absolutely about De Palma is he was a student of film. He was fascinated mm. by film and the way film can be used. He was fascinated by directors oh. and, and maybe even obsessed possibly. And one of the things he was not afraid to do uh, in his movies was be to be very derivative in the untouchables, the scene with the baby carriage going, down the stairs is right out of the Potemkin, a silent movie from Russia in Phantom of the Paradise. He, he virtually says, you know, says, I love Hitchcock. I'm doing a shower scene. Yeah, and, you he, know, and instead of a knife, it's a plunger that he puts into the guy's face. Yeah, but, I think he is kind of he is kind of known a bit for his love of Hitchcock. Yeah. Uh, and 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 he has that um, split screen thing he does in a lot of his films. Let's that's talk about that's the, that. Yeah, Can that's you, there in Phantom of the Paradise. Does anybody it? know if this is the first movie he uses the split screen thing? Um, I, I haven't seen Sisters recently enough, which is the one before it. But um, I think it, his most famous yeah, use of it is in Carrie, mm, mm. Uh, which wasn't done all that long after this movie. Mm. But uh, one of the fascinating things he does is, he, again, he is filming. 
what essentially is a live stage play. It, it's actually a rehearsal, but mm-hmm. he's got two cameras operating, filming simultaneously, and he does a split screen to show what's happening in the background and what's happening in the foreground. And all of that is from A Touch of Evil, an Orson mm-hmm. Welles movie, the famous uh, opening uh, scene where Orson Welles does not break the camera as it moves along, it's a very famous scene. And, and apparently, again, De Palma is saying, you know, is he, I guess he's paying tribute. That's all I can say, uh, think mm-hmm. of. And maybe he wants it. It's it, in, in other words, these are not subtle tributes that they're, they're really obvious. Mm-hmm. Like it's not hiding the fact that, you know, what I'm really doing here is Orson Welles. What I'm really doing here is Hitchcock, what, mm. you know, et cetera. Um, and I don't know, that kind of, I don't know, it's less obvious when you start getting into Scarface. It's it's well, not so obvious, but. Well, and they say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So certainly as De Palma, you know, uh, continued making films, he he um, developed his own style, but these earlier films certainly were probably tributes to some of his favorites. But a moment ago, you mentioned something that I wanted to tie into some trivia here, Toppy. De Palma worked on Carrie, but uh, little do some of our listeners know that a member of the cast of Carrie did some work on Phantom of the Paradise. Sissy Spacek helped dress the set. Uh, oh, my God. I read that. How weird. Yeah. <laughs> She her uh, she was seeing her future husband while working on this, and uh, she admitted she didn't do a very good job. But there you go, a piece of trivia. She was in Carrie by De Palma, and she worked on this. So, well, I don't know why she thinks she didn't do a good job. One of the most memorable things about this damn movie are the sets. Mm. <laughs> uh, uh, go ahead. Another another um, uh, Hitchcock connection to his films. Um, that he was still doing as late as '84 was his body double is very much rear window or inspired by rear window, so he's still doing, you know, his homage to Hitchcock even, even you know after Scarface. But, um, so so yeah. yeah, yeah. Dress to Kill has a lot of Hitchcock in it. Just briefly, uh, he's doing way more than Hitchcock in the mm-hmm. exposition of this movie. Think of how he moves the plot along so fast. Uh, when 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 the musician is thrown out by the swan and he gets beat up and then sent to sing sing, <laughs> that all happens in in, in minutes. And uh, there's a lot of um, cliche contrivances that he uses that are all the way back from silent film era, <clears throat> uh, where he accomplishes these things, e- even from putting in. If you notice the music in some of those action sequences that are just a teensy bit sped up are, are, are like the music that would have been played for a silent movie, um, you know, Keystone Cops movie. So there's a lot of references to that. All those scenes where there's these montages of spinning newspapers that come up. Mm-hmm. And that's all like jeepers, you know, so derivative. Even when the fa- when the, the phantom is writing his opus for the swan and he's locked in that room, you know, 
oh, here we start the scene with this giant candle. And then when he's finished, we see the candle burnt down and it's all, it's like, it's, I, I, it's so obvious, but I, I always wonder, like, why did he choose to do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, so before we wrap up, I just wanted to take a moment for each of us to pick what I like to call a moment you shouldn't miss. So uh, we'll let our guests go first here. Paul, let us know or let our listeners know, rather, uh, is there a moment in Phantom of the Paradise that really just glued you, that got you hooked that maybe if they are thinking about watching it, we'll get them to turn it on. Um, I, I, I just find, find the whole, when he starts to, uh, when, when he's sort of, uh, when, when the phantom is still, he's been um, injured, but he has, he sort of hasn't yet got his costume, but he, he sneaks into the theater and you see it from his point of view and he's waiting up the stairs and people are coming and going and, um, uh, and then he goes in. It's a bit like uh, Doctor Who when the Doctor chooses his uh, new costume. He he has a, a wardrobe to pick from, and, um, uh, and and he sort of although that mask is is just sitting there for him. He's 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 well served. But uh. oh, the scene where he he he's prowling around the theater in its point of view shots. Mm. Mm. Okay, did anyone else? just go right to um, Halloween and um, oh, yeah. the, point, the point of view shots that even go right to the, the mask mm. in the, in the first Halloween, <clears throat> it all starts with, with the, with someone prowling around a house who eventually goes inside, they go upstairs. It's all point of view. And then he put, he has this mask and we see it in his hand and he puts it over his face. Uh, that's right out of Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah. It, it just yeah. can't be a coincidence. I think that's like another director saying, De Palma was the shit. I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm inspired by this. Um, I, I just have to believe that's the case. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Clearly, I, I think I think the scenes that, that will get, that I think will get people hooked are uh, the, the couple of scenes where De Palma is, is essentially filming something that's happening live on stage. There's, and, and and you seem to be watching a flow, full-blown real musical on stage. And I think I think those are the parts that are like, you know, like wow, you know, this is this is something. It's got so much to do in it. It's almost like a, you know, a Super Bowl halftime show. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that what uh, what drew me in were the character moments. You know, like when Winslow is sitting down to play the piano, you you realize that they're, you know, revealing part of who he is. He's attached to the piano, and he's just a ordinary man who's trying to tell his story. And then you see those moments of transformation, like when he's injured after he breaks out of jail, and now he's going on a rampage. Mm-hmm. Well. I also feel that that moment where Swan has worked his magic, and by that I mean he's he's talked him into trusting him again, and he's going to make his music the star of his label. So they've locked him up in that little booth, and it's sort of a cage, if you will. You know, there's it is, no yeah. yeah. And uh, he, you know, of course, he's complete with a, a bird-like mask, so it's very fitting. But 
it's uh, part of the trivia is that he's got them all hooked up and they're altering his voice because, of course, he's injured himself as part of his rampage. So he's got what what passes for a voice box sitting on his chest. I mean, nowadays it looks like a big CB radio hanging by a strap. But, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't sound very much unlike the voice modulator that they used for the Daleks on Doctor Who. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when Paul Williams' character is playing around with the soundboards, doing the knobs and buttons and everything, his voice ends up being, spoiler, Paul Williams' own singing voice. So, of course, now it's perfect. And that's just a example of what kind of an egomaniac this Mr. Swan is. He turns his artists into a shadow of himself. Mm. Do you guys, um, I don't know the answer to this. I'm just wondering. Um, in prison, uh, we see the phantom. It's just so comical and weird and slapstick. But, uh, apparently, one of the things they do in this business is they rip out your teeth and put in metal teeth. <laughs> do, do you have, did that mean something? Is it sim? Did you feel like that, that was symbolic of anything? I couldn't, it, it was such a point. Was it just so that we could see the phantom running around looking weird with metal teeth or was there something more symbolic? I, I yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know. I think it had two purposes. Of course, it uh, allowed the the you know the phantom character to be that much more horrific, but also you know he already had him in jail, and in a sense, just like a lot of those mobster movies, you've got someone on the outside that you know. I think that that was his Swan's way of saying you may be in jail, but I've still got my you under my thumb. Right. Mm. Um, let's finally talk about, um, I think it's worth mentioning. I, I saw a print that was pristine. The colors were vivid. It looked like something that could have been made last year in terms of the quality of what I was seeing. Nothing, no colors faded. And, and I guess that's because they recently did a Blu-ray. Paul, you saw it on Blu-ray? Yeah, yeah, but I also have a DVD a few years before, so it'd be interesting to compare to see how much uh, uh, better it is on that Blu-ray. But uh. DJ, how did you see it? I, I saw a digital copy, which I think is uh, one of the restored versions. So, um, but I did watch some bonus material showing the comparisons between the original and the new, because I think it was recently an anniversary, and that's one of the reasons why they did the the restoration was for this new copy that Paul was talking about. Uh, okay, so there was a restoration. Mm. Well, it showed. I, I mean, I was stunned by uh, the quality of the print. Anything, any other notes? Anything fascinating? There's so much. This movie was weird. Ultimately, <laughs> I liked it. I really did. And I, th I thought it was inventive and very very strange did uh, we talk did we talk about the um the fact that they had to change uh, the name of the record company oh, oh yeah um so i knew nothing about this but there's a scene 
where it's a press conference, uh, the swan has landed and the press crowd around, and it's very brief. But I noticed that very sloppily, they've superimposed something over uh, the name of, of, of Swan's group. And I said, what, what the hell is that all about? <laughs> and um, it was, it was originally the record company was called Swan Song and later it was called death records, but, and this um, was a real life thing. Well, yeah. the, around the same time, Led Zeppelin were using it. I think it was Led Zeppelin and they kind of um, sort of, force them to sort of change it. Um, yeah, they, they said, hey, that's that's a real name. What's where, what was Brian De Palma forced to change the name to? Well, it was called Death Death Records, the bird on its back. That was ah, Death, okay, the bird Death on Records. its back, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, That that's, I, I saw that and I just said, what, what, what what's that all about? It's such <laughs> a terrible uh, little tiny special effect they used. It's like, because there's really there's the two like because you've got the bird, the goat, the bird on its back, which goes with Death Records. But then you still see, even though you don't see the word Swan Song, you still see lots of Swan logos. But then that I suppose without the words that still fits with Swan, um, and the, the, there's nothing they can do to make them change a logo which doesn't have any words on it. Yeah. Well, it, it almost makes you feel like if you've ever worked at any company that's been involved in a corporate setting that they got bought out. So even though realistically they had to change it due to copyright, it felt like, oh, well, this is a little division of something bigger, and that's who bought them out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Well, ultimately, I I, rec I recommend the movie. It's a, it's a enormous curiosity. If you're a Brian De Palma fan, you're certainly going to be interested in seeing it. And if you're uh, interested in the music scene of the time, it just seems like you're going to want to see this. There's a lot of reasons to see this. What What do you guys say? Recommend it? Oh yes, <laughs> and, yeah. and thank you, thank you to my friend Nick for introducing to me it to me originally. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I um, I enjoyed this film, and I can't say that I've seen many De Palma films. Although until I started this collaboration with my my uh, my dear bro nerd brother Toppy here, I don't I can't say that I was paying attention who the directors of films were as much as the cast. Mm -hmm. But it certainly makes me want to seek out more Brian De Palma films because in a moment I'll talk about. Uh, related things that I'd recommend. And there is a De Palma film there. So um, if everyone is ready, this is a part of the show we like to call our snack tray. So if you enjoyed The Phantom of the Paradise, the recommendation from our friend, Mr. Paul Chandler of The Shy Life, there's some other things you might enjoy watching. And uh, I'll go first on that. I've got a couple of recommendations here. So uh, in the same uh, vein of Phantom of the Paradise, since this really was a mashup of several different legendary stories, one including Phantom of the Opera, which I would recommend the 2004 Phantom of the Opera theatrical release. And this was actually quite a delightful movie because uh, while it incorporated elements of the original Phantom story with the the man who was paying for the diva's uh, singing lessons, 
Uh, it also gives you a little history of the theater because there's an auction that takes place and it's gorgeous because uh, the beginning of the film is in black and white. It gives you a taste of the days gone by. And as the chandelier in the opera house is being raised, the dust is disappearing and they colorize the scene into these beautiful crimson reds and these Tuscan colors of candlelight. So the opera house comes to life as the chandelier that fell during Phantom of the Opera rises to the ceiling. So the 2004 Phantom of the Opera, I'd recommend, stars Gerard Butler, M Emmy Rossum, and also Mini Driver, which many of you may be more familiar with. And my second recommendation... Um, DJ, I, I got to ask, was that 2004, was that a movie version of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom? Uh, I do believe so, yes. Okay. Yeah, so unlike the original Phantom story, which the earliest version was a black and white film that involved a photographer... And that's how he's disfigured is through a, uh, a developing accident in the dark room. Um, this Phantom of the Opera has uh, some elements of that. They, they do explain an accident that disfigures the, uh, the fan of the diva. But that, yeah, 2004. And uh, also, I'm going to recommend a film from 2000, which happens to be a Brian De Palma film. And it's a film that I actually enjoyed long before I learned A Phantom of the Paradise. This is a film called Mission to Mars, and it stars Gary Shanice, who, of course, most notably was in Forrest Gump as uh, Lieutenant Dan, as well as Jerry O'Connell, who we talked about as being born in 74. And, uh, well, uh, he is known for being in that Sliders show on Fox, and he's going to be doing a voice on the new Star Trek Below Decks cartoon coming out soon. And uh, it also has Don Cheadle, who was in some of those Oceans movies that had, um, oh, uh, George Clooney in them. Yeah, the so, Ocean Eleven movie. Yeah, and the ones that followed a couple of them. So Mission to Mars from 2000, which was Brian De Palma film, thoroughly enjoyable. Um, Paul, what what uh, what does this Phantom of the Paradise make you think of and want to uh, uh, toss out there? Yeah, I, I recommend two films. I think we've mentioned both of them, but just in passing. Um, I would recommend the, I think it's 1973, Wicker Man, because that's uh, if you can get if you can cope with Phantom of the Paradise, then the original Wicker Man is also almost a musical in many ways. And also a horror film. Um, doesn't have the campy humor. Yeah, like, no uh, but, but, <laughs> but it's still. Yeah, no camp and Wicker Man. And no. by the way, we're not talking about that uh, recent uh, remake. We're talking about the uh, original. No. Uh, nope. Yeah. And uh, my other recommendation would be Suspiria, not only for Jessica Harper, but um, the, the uh, Dario Argento is very interested in colors and how a film looks and that sort of shares a similarity with phantom of the paradise they they definitely have a very unique vivid color style um and uh, again suspiria uh, is, is a is a very good uh sort of horror film italian horror film but um it's it is in, in english uh, mm -hmm. language so i guess i'd toss out there um you know <sighs> 
well, one of the closest things I can think of that's related to Phantom of the Paradise is Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, Yay! <laughs> it's, it's really something how closely they're related. The other thing, um, I, I certainly... Um, since one of the things Phantom of the Paradise tries to... Parody isn't the right word. Reference, I guess, maybe is a better word, is Phantom of the Opera. Um, the movie that I can think of that closely resembles what De Palma was doing there, um, even to the point of a film, a movie filming a stage production is Claude Rains' Phantom of the Opera from the 40s, I think, mm -hmm. um, which was a color movie. And, um, you know, what happens to Phantom of the Opera, his decline into madness is, you know, really where the Phantom of the Paradise's decline in, the mad in his madness, you know, they... It's kind of the same story. Otherwise, De Palma-wise, you want to see more split screen? <laughs> uh, uh, look at Carrie, uh, which also does a lot with color. Um, De Palma does, you know, De Palma loves red. What can I say? Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> Carrie has a lot of red in it. Um, the only other thing, the camp quality God, um, I mean, I think it owes something to that's to Batman. I'm not sure. There, uh, <laughs> um, Willy Wonka. There's the surreal, campy qualities are make me think of those things. Uh, but frankly. Uh, Phantom of the Paradise is, is one of a kind. Weird, weird, weird. <laughs> All righty, folks. Well, uh, now is the time where we give you a little tease of what's to come. Bring me that bag of coins there, the magician left behind, Toppy. Oh, I got it right here. Uh, that magician, magician from Vaudeville left these magic coins. Here you go. Okay, so go ahead and hand me that capsule there, there sir. There you go. There. What does our next selection, DJ? What's in that capsule? Okay, well, this is a film from 71, and this is going to be an Easter special. It's going to be on Friday, April 6th, here on Univaz. A poor but hopeful boy seeks one of the five coveted golden tickets, and I think you know what I'm talking about. This is a movie that stars Gene Wilder in the lead role of Willy Wonka. And of course, we've got Jack Albertson and Peter Ostrom, and just a laundry list of talents. And uh, Easter's all about candy, of course, so it's one of my favorite days of the year. Next time on Matinee Minutia, Willy, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Because I've got a golden ticket, it's a golden day. <laughs> uh, 
All right. Looking forward to that. Um, I, I recently, uh, before I knew we were doing this movie, uh, just suddenly needed to see Willy Wonka, the Gene Wilder version. And, and right after it, I said, well, now I want to see uh, Who's Its Face in the newer version. Who do I mean by Who's Its Face? What's his oh, name? Johnny Depp. Yeah, Johnny Depp. <laughs> Alrighty, folks. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Oh. <laughs> and um, oh, thank you. you're quite welcome. And let the fine folks at home let uh, know where they can find you on the interwebs. Uh, well, I have my own show, which uh, uh, the Shy Life Podcast, and uh, I, I hope we can we can keep our date for. If you remember last summer. We, we we did a special Shy Life podcast episode celebrating the first season of Battle Minutia, and I'm hoping you'll keep the date again for when you get to the end of this season, and we'll we'll meet up again and have a big chat about uh, um, your your second season. Ooh, um, sounds good to me, right, DJ? Yeah, I know uh, if you strike the punch, Gertie will be there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm also on uh, Around the Archives, which is the podcast about. Um, um, more British TV, a sort of obscure TV, and I have a, a, a blog, uh, shayeti.com. But those are those are the uh, you know the, the main locations. Very good. It was a pleasure having you, sir. And uh, you. my dear sweet nerd brother, Toppy, would you do us the honors of saying good night, Gracie? Well, good night, Gracie. Thank you for listening to Matinee Minutia. Our show streams live on the first and third Friday of the month. Go to univazpods.net, click the tower for audio, enter Discord for chat. You can find our show anywhere you listen to podcasts. Visit our webpage at matineeminutia.com. Tweet us on Twitter at Matinee Minutia. Find our group on Facebook. Have an idea for a show? Or let us know how we're doing. Email us at matinemanusha at gmail.com. I have a voice. I have a voice. You have a voice. You have a voice. We have a voice. We have a voice. Unique voices in podcasting. Univazpods.net.